You're listening to the Podcast Network. Find more great podcasts at www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Welcome to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast, episode 28. Uh, this is picking up from where we left off last time, which was the beginning of the War of the Sixth Coalition. We're still in the War of the Sixth Coalition. I think last time, David, we concluded, if I'm correct, with uh, Napoleon's father-in-law, the Emperor of Austria, deciding, you know what? Yeah, you know... He's married to my daughter, but that's not really enough to keep us at peace. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring with the Allies as well. Welcome to welcome to the show, Jed well, Markham. Well, thank you very much, Cameron. It's a pleasure to be here, as it always is, and 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 welcome to all of our our loyal listeners out there. Uh, it's good to have you on board again. Also, uh, this is one of those e- examples in history of the best laid plans of mice and men and all that. Uh, Napoleon had divorced Josephine and married uh, Marie Louise. And we talked about that in a previous episode. He had first looked to to marry into the the Russian uh, imperial family. And when that didn't work out, uh, he decided to marry uh, Marie Louise, the daughter of the Austrian emperor, Francis. And it was purely a political decision, both on Napoleon's part, who, who wanted, of course, to tie his regime to the oldest monarchy uh, in Europe, the Habsburgs. But it was also a, a political decision by Prince Metternich and the Emperor of Austria. Uh, this was good news for them as well. <clears throat> it would tie them to the rising star of Napoleon Bonaparte, Emperor of the French. So uh, in 1810, uh, these two political desires uh, merged uh, into the marriage of, of Napoleon and, and uh, Princess Marie Louise. Well, if there was ever a time that Napoleon would have hoped that this marriage would bear fruit other than the obvious fruit of, of their son, whom he dearly loved, this would be it. Napoleon is in a bit of a pickle, but it is not by any means a situation from which he cannot come out uh, smelling like a rose. He's got the the Prussians and he has the Russians uh, taking off after him. But he still has, first of all, the Confederation of the Rhine uh, holding intact. And while that's not a major uh, military powerhouse. It's it's still a significant group of allies and a significant uh, block of territory. But most importantly, he has on his side, at least nominally, uh, the Emperor uh, uh, Francis and the Austrian Empire that he rules. Now that is substantial. Francis has some significant political influence with the Russians and the Prussians. He controls a great deal of territory. He has a large army. He is very strategically located. Uh, if, if Austria stands firm with their ally France, and if Francis stands firm with his son-in-law to support you know, the interests of his daughter and, and, and his grandchild, then Napoleon is going to be able to come up with some kind of a reasonable solution to his military problems. He's either going to be able, using his army, the armies of of his allies in the Confederation of the Rhine and the Austrian armies, uh, he's either going to be able to use those to defeat the Prussians, the Russians, the Swedes, and a few others, or he's going to be able to use that political and military power to force some kind of a reasonable armistice and indeed a reasonable peace treaty 
But that's a very, very big if, as it turns out. And as we discussed last time on August 12th of 1813, uh, Austria, which had tried to broker a peace, but a peace that asked Napoleon to give up far more than he possibly could at that point in time. Later on, you'll you'll see that he, he would be quite content to give up what was asked for uh, by, by Austria in this armistice negotiation. Uh, but at the time, it was too much. And so on the 12th of August, 1813, Austria uh, declared war, uh, thus ending uh, the armistice and really realistically ending Napoleon's likelihood of achieving ultimate military success. Now, now that said, Napoleon has a, a fair amount of military success, uh, at least initially. <clears throat> First of all, he marches to Dresden in, in modern-day eastern Germany and lifts a, a siege that had been uh, there, uh, defeating the, his enemies and releasing those troops and, and getting his hands on major uh, supply depot <clears throat> and, and also sort of putting pressure on his allies in Saxony to, to stay put, to stay uh, with him. Uh, the victory cost the allies somewhere almost, almost 40,000 uh, casualties. Uh, the French lost maybe 10,000. Uh, but as we've seen before, and as we'll see shortly and soon enough, he's unable to carry the victory to its ultimate conclusion by pursuing and destroying uh, his enemy. He does not have the cavalry, and as a result, uh, General uh, Van Damme uh, tries to, to go after them, tries to to uh, envelop and, and destroy the, the retreating army, but the army uh, gets, gets away. In the meantime, some of Napoleon's other uh, commanders, some of his marshals, have, have, have suffered at least minor setbacks. So, you know, the overall psychological uh, result is, is, is less than it could have been. Now, Napoleon is, again, in, in the, on the modern map, he's, he's in, uh, I suppose, south... Uh, Eastern Germany, and, and he'd really like to move up to, to Berlin and capture Berlin. If he could capture Berlin, he could conceivably convince the Prussians to settle. He could defeat the Prussians. Uh, he, he might be able to get them to withdraw from the coalition that was against him. And so that's what Napoleon really, really wants to do. <clears throat> but he can't. Every time he begins to organize his forces and go on the march, something pops up someplace else. You know, it's a little bit like one of these shooting gallery things where you don't know where the duck is going to pop up uh, for you to shoot at or, or, <laughs> or whatever it is. And some of the electric games uh, of today have very, very similar kinds of things. Uh, well, Napoleon was in the same uh, predicament. He knew what his goal should be, but he was unable to pursue that goal uh, because uh, he kept having to, to, to deal with uh, various difficulties that popped up. And the, the worst thing that popped up uh, in, in these early days was on the 6th of October when the Confederation of the Rhine uh, uh, member of Bavaria uh, switched to the, the coalition, to, to the six coalitions, uh, after being told that, of course, when this was all done with uh, Bavaria would be an independent state. So the Confederation of the Rhine uh, was was starting to to show signs of of coming apart at the seams, and uh, it, it's it's unclear just just how bad this was going to become with with Bavaria leaving. Uh, but but clearly there was there was a, a problem. So Napoleon. Rather than being able to go all the way up to Berlin, uh, moves over a, a little north uh, east or northwest rather 
from Dresden and, and, and moves toward uh, Leipzig, the city of Leipzig, which is today a major city uh, in Germany and uh, a place that I had the, 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 the pleasure of, of visiting uh, this, this summer and went to the, the monument. And I will imagine that we'll have a picture or two of that monument uh, on our website very shortly. Uh, including one where I'm giving you the, you know, my considered opinion of what happened there. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, uh, so Napoleon uh, takes, oh, maybe 200,000 or so. He's really got more than that, but a lot of them are kind of scattered around, and it's it's not easy to pull them all together. But, but he probably has pretty close to uh, 200,000 uh, with him. Uh, and as he goes into the area, he... He, he uh, kicks uh, uh, Field Marshal uh, Blucher's butt a little bit of Dubin uh, on the 9th of October. Uh, but as we see again, the, the, the enemy withdraws, uh, suffers losses, especially their rear guard gets beat up pretty bad. Uh, but the main Prussian force uh, is not defeated. It's not challenged uh, very hard. Uh, and so now you've got all of the forces moving in the general direction of, of Leipzig. Okay, so Napoleon has pretty close to 200,000 soldiers in the area, but the coalition forces also have around 200, maybe even a little over 200,000. Both of them have other forces in the area but the coalition forces are closer and more likely to arrive to reinforce their side before anybody on the French side will up. Well, Napoleon uh, does what he does best. He says, okay, I'm outnumbered and it could get worse, so I need to take action and I need to take action uh, quickly. And so he begins to uh, move forces against various elements of the coalition, uh, trying to keep them from uniting, trying to keep them off balance, trying to keep them from moving uh, en masse against his forces. Unfortunately, uh, it was his side that was kept more off balance because they were, number one, outnumbered, if, if however slightly, and number two, and far more importantly, and you know, I'm like a broken record on this, but man, it made a difference uh, in this campaign. Uh, the lack of adequate cavalry. Uh, without adequate horses, without adequate cavalry, it is very, very difficult to muster a major attack. It is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to pursue a defeated enemy. Uh, it's difficult to make normal kinds of maneuvers because you don't have nearly as, as much cavalry to do screening operations and do and, 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 and go out in advance to, to uh, see what's going on. Uh, you, you really are, are in a tough uh, situation if you don't have uh, adequate uh, cavalry. So now we move up to the 16th of October. And there's really not a whole lot going on. There's a lot of fighting back and forth, but not much territory uh, is, is really affected. Uh, and and uh, the French lost probably fewer soldiers than the, the Allies. So, you know, the, the day is, is, a, is, is a modest improvement for Napoleon in that regard. Unfortunately, the coalition, going back to what I said a while ago, was anticipating maybe as many as 150 sol 150,000 soldiers to pop up uh, relatively soon. Napoleon had oh 15, 20,000 something along uh, that line uh, uh, showing up. So the imbalance between the two, which was not great right now, on the 16th of October 1813, was likely to get uh, much worse. For whatever reason, on the 17th, both sides decided to take the day off. Now, this has happened from time to time in other campaigns, and sometimes it's been to Napoleon's benefit. And of course, it's always good for troops to rest. It's always good to be able to, to refresh yourselves 
a little bit and, and good to be able to you know clean your muskets and and consolidate your positions a little bit and certainly napoleon did that but all things considered it was much better for napoleon's enemies because here come that hundred and fifty thousand uh, troops that i'm talking about you know all day long more and more and more six coalition forces are arriving on the scene well, Napoleon's no dummy. He's well aware of the fact that these people are arriving. And he decides early on the 18th, I don't know, three or four in the morning, that it's time to go. That he simply cannot sustain the positions he has uh, there. And so he decides to move across uh, the river uh, near uh, uh, a place called Lindenau. Right? Now, naturally enough, it's pouring rain, and no one moves very quickly in pouring rain, certainly not artillery, certainly not, you know, carriages, carts, etc., etc., and, and not even soldiers uh, on the march uh, go, go very, very quickly. And of course, the, the Allies are, are fighting at their rear guard. There's their shooting going on. And then an absolute disaster occurs. The, you know, just the latest in, in a series of disasters from this campaign. And, and, and that is uh, the Saxon army. The Saxons were uh, strong allies of Napoleon. Napoleon really counted on them. And, you know, the Saxons marched side by side with the French. And they were, you know, in great solidarity and so forth and so on. And then suddenly, taking orders from on high, two full divisions of Saxons literally turned around and started firing on the French. If I recall correctly, uh, you know, Napoleon was, was given a few minutes warning that this was going to happen, and that was about it. Uh, the, the French drove them off, uh, suffering some casualties, of course, as, as did the Saxons, but the word spread like wildfire. You know, first the Bavarians, and now the Saxons, our great buddies, the Saxons, have left, and not just left, not just retired from the field to set it out, but become active members treacherously of the coalition against us. So they just so, they, they turned sure. on the battlefield. One, one minute they're fighting with the French, and the next minute they, start, they turn around and start firing on them. That's exactly right, Cameron. It's just an amazing story. That reminds me of uh, episode six, uh, well, yeah, episode three, I guess, really, of the but the final episode of the Star Wars movies, when the Emperor Palpatine issues Order sixty six to the uh, clone troops, and they turn around uh, in the midst of the battle and start shooting on uh, the Jedi's. That's exactly right, and that's 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 a very good uh, modern example. Of, of what Napoleon had to deal with. And I remember that scene in the Star Wars episode very, very well. Uh, and, and the effect on the Jedi, of course, was devastating. And it was devastating uh, on the French. Although the French actually came out of the deal probably better than the Jedi because they, they actually did uh, drive the, 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 the Saxons away. But the psychological impact not only on Napoleon's soldiers, and not only on Napoleon, but on the Allied soldiers, and particularly those soldiers who were allied with the French, still, who were beginning to wonder if maybe it wasn't time for them to, to do something uh, as well. So, David, so you've got... Let, let me ask you, before we move on, what do you think prompted... Bavaria and then Saxony, these these member states of the Confederation of the Rhine, who had been with Napoleon now since 1806. They they'd been there since uh, yeah, well, for what's that, six or seven years. What were their motivations for suddenly turning on him? Do you think? Well, I think that they uh, first of all, it's put the finger in the air and see which way the wind is blowing, and and they perceived 
with some justification that regardless of what they did, that Napoleon was likely to lose. And, you know, a lot of folks don't really want to be on the losing side. Now, if they had any sense of morality or ethics or, or, or friendship or anything like that, you'd think they would stick through to the bitter end. Uh, but that might be asking too much of them. Uh, secondly, I think they were, they were promised. Uh, I know Bavaria was promised. I think Saxony had promises as well. Uh, the king of Saxony was under a great deal of pressure and, and was cutting a deal. Uh, and uh, uh, if, if I recall correctly, the king of Saxony was actually with Napoleon and informed uh, Napoleon uh, of what was going on and then, and, and then was allowed to leave. Uh, and Napoleon was actually very, very civil to him and said, yes, I understand. And I'm very sorry to see you go. Oh, it's been a while since I've since I've read, you know, the, the details of that story. But that's 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 the way I recall it happening. And it's it's a very poignant story, uh, but it's also a very d d distressing story. And and, you know, whether or not Saxony staying and, and even Bavaria staying would have ultimately made the difference or not. It's, it's not possible to know. Uh, it sure wouldn't have hurt any if he'd have kept those divisions and, and, and so on. But, but uh, uh, nevertheless, psychologically, it was, it was a terrible uh, thing to have happen. Uh, and, and Napoleon responds, by the way, by saying, well, you know, maybe it's time to go ahead and try to have an armistice. So he sends words out, listen, let's have an armistice. Let's sit down and talk. And, you know, I'm, I have renewed interest in that earlier offer where we have to give up everything uh, that we've gained uh, since uh, 1800. Now, that was something, as I, as I said in the last episode, that, that might have caused Napoleon's uh, demise or, or, or overthrow or whatever in, in France uh, at, the t at the first opportunity. Uh, but now things were a lot different. Now his position was far weaker than it had been before. And whether or not he was going to have to face consequences in France, it was really time for him to try to cut a deal. And if he could get that same deal that had been offered to him you know back back in in uh, july and and in august uh when the last time they had an armistice uh that's not okay but the coalition forces of course also recognize that things are different uh, napoleon's much more on the run now uh he's lost a couple of more allies uh and and so why should they give him the same deal uh, but they sort of go through a few motions to get a few hours of rest. Uh, they don't really do much more until, oh, early to mid-morning <clears throat> on, on October uh, 19th. So there's at least some hemming and hawing and not, not something that anyone should have taken uh, too seriously, though. So Napoleon, of course, also can guess that's what's going on here. And he says, well, I, I better use my, my time wisely, and I need to get across the river. If I can get across the river, I can fall back on some depots because I'm, I'm low on ammunition, I'm low on other supplies. Uh, I do have a, 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 a quite a large number of soldiers uh, west of here, and, and if I can fall back on stronger positions with renewed supplies and, and reinforcements, uh, then we can carry this fight uh, forward. So they go across uh, the river, or they try to go across the river. Quite a few have already gotten across. At this point, there's only one bridge left. And uh, uh, Marshals uh, Udino and Poniatowski, uh, who, by the way, had become a marshal the day before, uh, are directing... Uh, actions uh, in the rear and and generally speaking Napoleon's army is getting across this one bridge in pretty good shape it's really it's not quite as dramatic or spectacular 
as the, the crossing of the Berezina, but it's still pretty good. Uh, had he done so, had the rear guard itself, which was about the last thing left as this next disaster looms up, uh, had the rear guard got across, it would have probably been entirely possible that Napoleon could have still forced some kind of an armistice on terms that, that might have been acceptable. Uh, but then here comes the next disaster. Some, some clown has been told, listen, once the French are all across, blow up the bridge. Well, that's reasonable. And the bridge has been mined. It's all set to go. Anyone who's seen any kind of war movie from World War II on back knows all about how you get your people across and up the bridge so the other guys can't get to you. It saves you a lot of time and, and causes grief to the enemy. So that's the plan. Unfortunately, whoever it was that was put in charge of blowing up that bridge didn't wait until the French had all gotten across. He blew it up while the French were still in the process of going across. The bridge itself had a lot of French soldiers on it, and there were still, oh, 15,000 or so French on the wrong side of the bridge. Now, 15,000 can go, go across a bridge in pretty quick order, so he didn't have to wait all that long. And yes, the Allies were not that far away. Uh, nevertheless, you, you, you need to wait. You don't want to blow the damn bridge up while your own, own people there. Whatever caused that to happen, it was an unmitigated disaster. Napoleon, who could not afford to lose an extra man, never mind an extra horse or an extra cannon or an extra ration or whatever, lost 15,000 captured, probably a couple thousand more died trying to cross the river or got blown up on the bridge, whatever the case may be, including, of course, one of the, the great figures of this period, Prince Poniatowski, the, 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 the Polish prince, one of Napoleon's most loyal supporters who was really a symbol of, of the Polish commitment to Napoleon's cause, a symbol of, of Poland's future as an uh, independent and free nation. You go to Warsaw now, and you go to the equivalent of the White House, or, or 10 Downing Street, you know, where, where the, the uh, president of Poland lives. There's this big courtyard and there's guards all around it. And there's an equestrian statue of Prince Poniatowski. He is today one of the great heroes of Poland. And, and as well, he should be. And, and for those people who, you know, like Napoleonic history, he's one of the, the, the greatest characters. And certainly if you you know, happen to think Napoleon was a good guy, uh, you, you certainly admire uh, Poniatowski and, and all that he did to support Napoleon's cause. Uh, and he dies. He's trying to get his horse across the river. The river is angry. There's, there's heavy rain, and it's just really rotten weather all the way around. And he drowns going across the river. A number of paintings, you know, showing, showing that. It was just terrible. And so in the final analysis, Leipzig is one of the biggest disasters in the Napoleonic period. Napoleon overall probably had around 40,000 casualties, killed and wounded. And almost that many, some number approaching 30,000 who were captured. So rounded off and figure 70,000 people are no longer available to him. Maybe some of the wounded could could come could come back fairly soon, but but you know 55 
to 65,000 soldiers are, are, are out of action for the duration of this campaign. He lost hundreds of cannon. And it's getting late in the game, Cameron. He, he can't make a whole bunch more cannon now. He doesn't have the time. He's lost lots and lots of ammunition, lots of supplies, even more horses. Uh, he's lost Bavaria. He's lost Saxony. He's, he's, he's lost, not Poland, but he's lost the great symbol of, of, of the Duchy of Warsaw. And soon enough, some of the other smaller, less important states of the Confederation of the Rhine are going to, uh, are, are going to leave him. And, of course, he now realizes that he must no longer fight his enemy on their territory. He must now fight his enemies who have gotten much bigger and much stronger. He must now fight them on French soil. This is the first time Napoleon has had to fight against any coalition forces on French soil. And the psychological psychological devastation that this must have caused him, his soldiers, and his supporters in France itself must have been horrible. And of course, it was great news if you are a Russian, a Prussian, an Austrian, or some of their other coalition allies. I've heard uh, Leipzig, or the Battle of the Nations, as it's also sometimes called, as Napoleon's second Trafalgar, but this time it was on land. I think General Fuller said that. It, I've read that this was the largest battle in Europe before World War I, with over 500,000 troops involved. And, uh, and outside of the Battle of Borodino in 1812 that we covered a couple of episodes ago, this was uh, probably the most severe of the battles. According to uh, David Chandler, we have over 200,000 rounds of artillery ammunition discharged, and by the 19th, the French stocks were down to a mere 20,000. Yeah, so you've mentioned the, the loss of horses, the loss of cannon, obviously the loss of men, loss of soldiers. He's also got no bullets left. Um, he lost not only the, the troops that you mentioned before, there were six general officers killed, a further 12 wounded, and no less than 36 fell into Allied hands as prisoners of war. So... He's, he's pretty much, you know, he doesn't have an army, really, does he, to speak of anymore? I mean, it, particularly considering the size of the Allied forces that are now on French or entering French territory ganged up against him. It's uh, Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you, you know, Napoleon, throughout his career, has been fighting larger forces than he typically had with him, particularly in the early days, and, and was very successful at fighting larger forces. Apart from the loss of uh, cavalry that you mentioned earlier on, is there also an aspect to these battles now where the other armies are a lot smarter about how to fight Napoleon than they were 20 years ago? They seem to not be making a lot of the same mistakes they used to make. They also seem to be avoiding Napoleon on the battlefield. Uh, they, they fight skirmishes with his marshals, but uh, not knowing that they have a better chance of beating Napoleon's marshals than they do actually beating the man himself. Is there, am I on the right track there? Sure. You're, you are getting a little ahead of it when you talk about avoiding Napoleon and, and fighting his marshals, although they did some of that in 1813 as well, of course. Uh, clearly, I mean, you know, a very famous quote by by uh, Wellington, you know, Napoleon's had is worth uh, 40,000 men on the field and and uh, there's a lot of truth to that. They, they realized that, that Napoleon was a tough person to beat, not only because he, he was so smart uh, as a commander on the field and, and maybe smarter than anyone they could come up with, but also because Napoleon's presence would inspire his soldiers uh, to do uh, their best. And 
because of Napoleon, he always had the Imperial Guard. So that meant that he had at least a core uh, of the very, very best soldiers with him, uh, which not all of the marshals might necessarily have. Uh, so, so there's no question that that uh, that they do that. Napoleon also, of course, as you rightfully uh, point out, is 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 low on supplies, men, horses, uh, you name it. Uh, and uh, when I say Napoleon, in this case, I mean his entire army. Now he has more of an army than you might think, because the more he pulls back toward France and then into France, uh, the more, of course, he's rolling up. Uh, those armies and those supplies and so forth that he has in reserve <clears throat> and and he's got marshals who who were behind him and etc and and so uh, he he does have the ability to a good fight but as we're going to see uh, in 1814 he can't be everywhere this was the problem he had in Spain when he was in Spain uh, he did fine, but where he wasn't, the French didn't do so good. And when he left Spain, uh, the French army didn't do well at all. And again, we'll comment again in a little while, I'm sure. Uh, you know, Wellington is is pushing into southern France at this point, so there's there's pressure below there as well. Uh, so you, you put all this together, and Napoleon is clearly. In, in tough shape. Uh, and and uh, when we look at the 1814 campaign, you know, that's one of the, the givens that we start with is that Napoleon has suffered a, a military, political, and, and surgical defeat of epic proportions in, in 1813 uh, as he withdraws through Leipzig and on into uh, on into France proper, it's it's just a bloody disaster, uh, starting with the withdrawal from from Russia, uh, and going forward, he he won this skirmish, he won that skirmish, he won a few battles, uh, you know he he certainly showed uh, all sorts of uh, indications that he was still capable of doing well, but his enemies also had learned how to fight better. Their armies were better organized. Their armies used at least a modified core system that he used. Uh, his soldiers better understood Napoleon's tactics now than they had in previous years. So Napoleon's advantage, while still there, was decidedly less than it had been uh, in the earlier days. And, and he's also, finally, just being overwhelmed. The numbers are starting to really get ugly. Uh, he's used to fighting against forces larger than he is. But those were in the days when he had adequate cavalry and adequate uh, uh, artillery and so on so that he could fight a battle the way he wanted to. He could defeat some portion of an enemy either pursue and destroy that enemy or wheel around quickly and then take on another portion of the enemy, uh, something that he basically tried to do prior to Waterloo and it didn't work out. Uh, but without adequate forces, especially without the mobility of, of adequate cavalry, you, you just, you're, 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 you're just out, outgunned. You, you just can't do what you used to be able to. Uh, I've got a I've got an interesting note here in um, your excellent book, Imperial Glory: The Bulletins of Napoleon's Grand Armée, which I think uh, is worth reading out. You know, we, we've often alluded during the course of the series to Napoleon's character, which you know is is typically uh, when when you read. <clears throat> negative histories of Napoleon he's he's called all manner of names and and I know that you and I have tried to fairly defend him without making him out to be a saint or, or, or perfect uh, certainly this is certainly without not without blemish but this is a fascinating letter from the major general to the lieutenant colonel commanding the Bavarian troops 
dated the 24th of October, 1813. Now, we just mentioned before that during um, this whole period, uh, Bavaria, which was one of the members of the Confederation of the Rhine, uh, decided to turn against France. This letter reads, the king, so this is from the French Major General to Lieutenant Colonel uh, running these Bavarian troops, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's from uh, Berthier, actually. Oh, okay, from Berthier. All right, so it says, the king, your master, forgetting what the emperor has done for him, has declared war against France. Under such circumstances, the Bavarian troops that are with the army should be disarmed and made prisoners of war. But that would be contrary to the confidence that the troops under his orders should have in him. In consequence, sir, his majesty's intention is that you should collect your battalion. You shall have magazines given you, four days provisions, and you shall set out from hence to proceed by Coburg on Bamberg, where you will take your orders from the minister of his majesty, the king of Bavaria. It would like Likewise, be equally contrary to the sentiments of honour and loyalty that you should bear arms against France. In consequence, it is the Emperor's wish that you and your officers should give your word of honour that neither you nor your soldiers shall serve against France for one year. Signed, the Prince Vice Constable Major General Alexander Bertier, as you said. Now, like, to me, this is an astounding letter. These guys should have been you know uh, uh, what taken prisoner of war as the letter says but Napoleon gives orders for them to be allowed to take not only rations but their magazines and and sent back to their king uh, just on the word of honour that they wouldn't fight against France I I think episodes like this actually speak a lot about Napoleon's character what do you think well I think that to some extent I I agree with you because he clearly could have uh kept those men to himself now there's also the fact that given what was happening it's unclear that napoleon was in a very good position to to deal with uh thousands and thousands of prisoners of war uh he he might figure that given that he could probably count on the honor of 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 these soldiers and and of their officers uh, to not uh, turn around and, and, and march against Napoleon in this campaign, that it might be financially and strategically better just to, to, to let them go. It, it was certainly good PR. I mean, I'm sure it had, you know, the, the, the uh, impact on other people uh, that it had on you when, when, when you read it. Uh, and, and I agree, it, it, was, it was a decent thing to do Although I suspect that was something that that uh, was beneficial to Napoleon as well. But even, I was a little surprised, however, that he would give them uh, the magazine. Exactly. Even I, if even if he decided they they couldn't, you know, manage five thousand prisoners of war, you wouldn't send them away. But without their guns, you wouldn't you wouldn't let them take their weapons with them. Surely. Well, I, I think you might let them take their weapons, but I'm not so sure I would issue them. You know, uh, <coughs> magazines. You know, gunpowder. So rations, I could understand too, as a humanitarian kind of thing. But, but you know, Napoleon is trying to make a point that he is a, a magnanimous to those people who have been his friends. And 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 by the way, he's also making it clear that he understands that these soldiers and their officers may or may not agree with what the king has done. And he, Napoleon, is not going to hold it against them. He's not to to make them suffer for what you know mistaken decisions uh, their king has has done. So so you're right. Even though I I think that there was probably you know some benefit to Napoleon simply in terms of not having to deal with the POWs. Uh, I think there's also benefit for you know the the image it gives the world of Napoleon. Uh, and uh, he probably hopes that eventually uh, he's going to be successful and, and that Bavaria may very well see the error of their ways. And this kind of a gesture uh, might help them see clear to coming back into a coalition once, once the war is over and, and Napoleon has, has, has won. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, and this has been 
part of my fascination with Napoleon over the last 20 years. Um, I remember when I was working for Microsoft for many years, uh, thinking about questions such as when you're a when you are a brilliant commander as Napoleon was, as Bill Gates has been at Microsoft, there, there is only a certain amount of things that you can do by yourself. And one of the big challenges, I think, with running a big corporation such as a Microsoft or a big army as Napoleon found himself controlling at this stage is how do you bring up people through the ranks that have the same vision or or capacity, capability that you have. David Chandler again alludes to this. He says, um, in the period following the breakdown of the armistice, Napoleon was trying to coordinate the control of half a million men, a task which was simply beyond the powers of any one man, with only the aid of the rudimentary communication systems of the day, as the experiences of 1812 should have taught him. As a result, again as in 1812, the marshals inevitably found themselves bearing greater responsibilities than they were used to on distant sectors of the front. That they practically always muffed their opportunities was partly due to Napoleon's failure to train up his subordinates for the exigencies of independent command and partly to the rapidly dwindling enthusiasm of the marshalate. Now, where do you think the responsibility lies here in Napoleon in terms of training up his marshals, his subordinates? Do you know much about the, 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 the programs that were in place for teaching them to be independent commanders? What happened back in those days? They obviously didn't go to university. They, they didn't have the equivalent of West Point to go to while they were on campaign, I guess. Well, they, 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 they couldn't do that. Of course, you know, Napoleon tried to pick uh, commanders uh, who, who, who in, in whom he had a deal of confidence in. And he had some, some brilliant uh, commanders, uh, uh, Masena, Davu, and, 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 and others could be, could be brilliant from time to time in the right circumstances. Even, even Ney and Murat could be, could be brilliant, but they, they could also be idiots. Uh, so I don't know so much about training. One of the things you, 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 you have sort of almost two conflicting things here. The core system allows for independent command to some extent uh, because it allows for, for a, uh, uh, an independence of movement from uh, one core in support of another core and, and, and into enveloping actions and, and whatever else is, is called for. Uh, so in that sense, uh, you know, the system is set up for a level of independence that you cannot have in the in the old uh, organizational structures uh, used by by his. And that's one of the reasons why Napoleon was so successful in earlier campaigns was because of the reorganization, the new way of organizing uh, the army. Uh, it wasn't too much unlike uh, Cromwell with a new model army. You know, it was so different, so so much better in its organization, to say nothing of its enthusiasm and so forth, than than the the army of of, of, of the uh, of, of, of the king. Uh, on the other hand, it was always assumed that everything would be happening under the overall direction of Napoleon and that a campaign would be unified. In other words, okay, you've got a campaign against the Prussians, or you have a campaign against the Austrians, or you're going into Spain, or whatever, and you, Napoleon, are going to plan a, an overall strategy, put it into effect, and now your various uh, uh, marshals uh, controlling you know, their, their uh, units uh, will be able to move quasi-independently, but always under your watchful eye. Well, that's okay, Cameron, if, if you have one or maybe even two campaigns going on and you have your forces mobilized, you have them you know, brought to bear uh, in a campaign. But what we have now, of course, is disarray, defeat, retreat, uh, breakdowns of communication, when you are retreating, uh, when the enemy is on all sides, when, when you don't quite know what's going on, it's very difficult to, 
to organize uh, communications. It's very difficult to even organize your thoughts. Uh, how will I deal with this? Where is this unit exactly? Where are, are the what's the enemy thinking of doing? Uh, Napoleon is also much more used to taking the aggressive position. Napoleon's greatest abilities lay in being able to attack and defeat his enemy, oftentimes before his enemy even knew what was happening. But Napoleon is now falling back. He no longer has the initiative. The enemy has the initiative. The enemy knows what they are doing much more than Napoleon knows what he is doing, never mind what his enemy is doing. So it's a whole different situation for Napoleon. As we will see next time when we look at 1814, Napoleon actually recovers and, and campaigns brilliantly. Many people, and I'll say this again next time, I'm sure, many people believe that Napoleon's campaign in defense of his country, in defense of France, is you know that that campaign is one of his best campaigns that said the, the the fact remains that he's on the run he's outnumbered his forces are no longer unified and he can no longer have the kind of of overarching control of of what his soldiers are doing. There's also the point when we speak about the marshalette as well that, uh, and I know that we've mentioned this a couple of times before, and it, rem it, it reminds me in many ways of the situation that Alexander the Great found himself towards the uh, end of his campaign and the end of his uh, unfortunately short life in that these marshals of the empire that Napoleon had brought up around him, he had tried to compensate them with titles, with, with wealth, and I get the sense that a lot of them were kind of thinking, well, you know, I want to go live the good life. Uh, you know, this life of being continually on campaign, they perhaps weren't as wedded to. Uh, they didn't have the same rationale behind it as Napoleon did. Not that I necessarily think Napoleon loved being out there on campaign, on campaign either, but I think he understood why it was important. Do you ever get the sense that some of these marshals wanted to go and live in their dukey or their kingdom surrounded by their mistresses and their wealth and their comfort? Oh, no question about it. And I don't entirely blame them. Uh, Napoleon would, would say to them, listen, I made you what you are. How can you possibly think about deserting me uh, uh, when, when without me you would have been, you know, still just a baker's son or whatever, uh, or still just a, a, a lowly general uh, someplace. And, and he certainly had a point. But, but it's also true that, you know, all those years of fighting wear you down. You're not getting any younger. You do have all this wealth. You do have a, a lovely home uh, someplace. And, and uh, you've got nice titles and so on. And, and, and uh, you're... Possibly a mistress here and there, and and so yeah, you 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 would sort of like to to live out your life, and it's it's true with anyone. I mean, even if you love being a marshal, love the campaign, you know, think about teachers, think think about Microsoft employees, think about anyone. No matter how much you love your job, you do look forward to somewhere along the line not having to get up at 5.15 in the morning and, and commute, to, commute to wherever it is you're going to go and spend all day working for somebody else and dealing with this problem or that problem. You do look forward to being able to relax and work on your own schedule, you know, write or read or travel, uh, putter in the garden, whatever it is you would like to do. Uh, and... That's without question the way some, at least, of the marshals were beginning to feel. And again, it's Cameron, it's easier to feel that way when you're being beaten. And, and right now, and, and of course, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because I think anyone who's read any, any book on Napoleon knows, you know, that the marshals, in fact, do you know, revolt to, to one extent or another, some of them. Uh, right now, Napoleon's being defeated. Things are looking bad. A lot of his marshals still put up a good fight. It's not all over yet. And 
you know, they're, they're loyal still. Are they as enthusiastic? Probably not. Does this affect their success in the field? On, the, on that point, I'm not so sure. They still don't want to be defeated. No one wants on his record lost the battle of whatever. Uh, no one wants to to lose because that in, involves not only a lack of, of honor or a loss of honor or loss of prestige, loss of privilege, but it, it also involves you know, more of your soldiers being killed than would probably be killed if you had led them properly and won. And these marshals, to give them their due, are loyal to their men, and their men are loyal to them. They, they don't wish to, to simply, you know, be cavalier and lose a bunch of men in a losing cause. If they're going to lose men, they want it to be in a winning cause. Uh, so I don't want to impugn their integrity that way. There's no reason to feel uh, that that there's that there is, is any of integrity in that sense. We will certainly see. Uh, Marshal Marmont uh, show a real loss of integrity uh, later on, but that involves surrendering soldiers, which is a lot better than having them, you know, killed off in a losing cause. Uh, uh, if he were to have just thrown them uselessly into a battle, for example. So, you know, all of what you say has a point, particularly as we get deeper into 1814. But for now, at least, as we close out 1813 after Leipzig, the marshals he has, I think, are, are making an effort to be successful because it's not at all clear what this is going to end up as. Most people, if you ask them, would have said at the time, most commanders, marshals, generals, whatever, it doesn't look good for Napoleon winning great victory, defeating the enemy. On the other hand, it may very well have looked likely... And, and we'll start next episode off with a variety of reasons for this, it may very well have looked likely that there would be some kind of a peace sign, that the empire was finished, for the most part, at the very least. I'll just... Uh, but, that the, oh. but that Napoleon wasn't finished. And there's a big difference. He may have lost his empire. That doesn't mean he's lost France. No one knows for sure that the Allies are going to really follow Napoleon into France. They didn't know. You'll remember when we talked about Russia. When Napoleon leaves Russia, goes on into to Lithuania and then into Poland and so on. No one really knew for sure that Tsar Alexander would pursue Napoleon. He'd kick Napoleon out of history. That might be enough. Had it been enough, now the Prussians might just clam up and stay where they are. Austria would remain allied with, with Napoleon. Napoleon would not have suffered Leipzig and all these other defeats. He, he would still have a substantial empire, basically the same empire he had before the 1812 campaign, had Russia been content to kick him out. Now, his prestige would have been down. That might have had an impact in other ways later on, political impact. You know, who's to say how things would have gone a year, two, three years down the road? After all, this whole story of Napoleon has been periods of what looked like were going to be peace broken by, you know, one member of the coalition or another deciding, no, we want to try to take him on again. And it seemed to do that might very well have happened down the line, but Napoleon would have been in a far stronger position to deal with it the way he always had in the past. So, you know, no one knew about Tsar Alexander. So, okay, now they've, they've in fact pursued Napoleon. Napoleon's lost a lot of his allies, most notably again Austria. Uh, and, uh, and, and now he's in France. Well, they may very well stop right there. Invading the motherland, invading France, wasn't necessarily on anyone's agenda. Tsar Alexander uh, didn't necessarily want to try to conquer France and throw Napoleon off the throne. Uh, the Prussians probably did. Uh, 
the emperor of Austria, Francis, my goodness, if he invades France, he's invading the country that's sort of governed, you know, the empress uh, of, of France is, is his daughter. So as we'll discuss next time, it's not sure that Napoleon isn't going to be able to sort of pull up at the border, wipe off his brow and say, okay, let's go on from here. We sometimes get accused of uh, the whole, of, of being overly positive about Napoleon. And I think that David, no. <laughs> and, and, I, and I try and defend us and say, no, no, we, we try and ad- ad- admit that this guy wasn't perfect. Certainly, he didn't make mis- and, and it was not that he didn't make mistakes. But David Chandler uh, kind of sums up this, this period quite well, I think. So I shall read from the book of Chandler. Napoleon fought with all his old tenacity, ferocity and skill, but in the end, sheer numbers told in the Allied favour. Napoleon, indeed, was guilty of several severe political and military miscalculations, which between them underlie his failure. He tended to despise his opponents. This was justifiable in the case of Bernard Dott, but he completely underestimated the degree of Blücher's hatred for him or of the Tsar's persistence. He never expected that his father-in-law, the Emperor of Austria, would turn fully against him. He never appreciated how sick were the German states of the French yoke or how unreal were his expectations of military support from those quarters. He left thousands of invaluable fighting men and several of his best generals south of the Pyrenees. But worst of all, he never realised that there was a new spirit abroad in Europe. He still believed he was dealing with the old feudal monarchies, which in fact his earlier victories had largely swept away. France was no longer the only country to be imbued with a genuine national inspiration or equipped with a truly national army. France's foes had at least learned valuable lessons from their earlier defeats, both political and military, and were now learning how to employ their newfound strength against a rapidly tiring opponent. Well, David, David and I were, were, were pretty good friends years ago before he died, and David Chandler is, is never going to be accused of being overly positive uh, to, to Napoleon. Uh, but I, I think he, he makes a lot of good points there. I think that Napoleon really did misjudge uh, the situation in the German states. I don't think he did really understand how determined Blucher especially was uh, to destroy uh, not just France, but Napoleon. Blucher hated anything to do with Napoleon. And then I talk about that some in my next book. Uh, I think the, the one thing where I, I may disagree to some extent with, with, with Chandler uh, is, is, is Francis of, of uh, Austria. Uh, I don't think that it was unreasonable for Napoleon to think that while it, Francis might not have been a real uh, enthusiastic gung-ho ally, I don't think it was entirely unreasonable for him to think that 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 blood was thicker than water. And you got to remember, Napoleon is Corsican, and in the Corsican culture, family is everything: family ties, family loyalty, uh, vendettas against people who who hurt your family. All of this kind of thing is part of his upbringing, part of his psyche. So it would be extremely difficult for him to believe that even though there might be pressure from Prince Metternich, even though, you know, the wind might seem to be blowing in the wrong direction, uh, that uh, Austria would completely turn against him. He knew they wouldn't be great allies. I mean, they hadn't been great allies uh, before, uh, but uh, he probably had some reason to think that they wouldn't completely turn on him. Now, as far as the Spain thing is concerned, that's also at least partially true on, on the part of David Chandler. Uh, there were soldiers that could have been brought up. Now, mind you, uh, Wellington is on the move down there, so he can't just uh, empty out that 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 sector uh, brought some uh, some of his better uh, soldiers uh, forward, 
whether or not that would have made a difference, well, it's hard to say. You know, 15,000, you know, cavalry uh, led properly in the right situation uh, uh, after Dresden, for example, or, or even uh, at Leipzig. Uh, might have made a difference. It's it's entirely impossible to say, but but Chandler's right. Napoleon could have done things differently, and Napoleon probably didn't realize quite what he was up against, uh, and and I'm not sure anyone would have realized quite what he was up against. But but Napoleon uh, certainly didn't, and 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 it cost him. Well. As I'm determined to get the last word in, I've decided to fi- <laughs> to finish the show with a quote. There's lots of great Napoleon <laughs> quotes around. Um, and I think even people who know nothing about Napoleon are familiar with a handful of quotes that are attributed to him. And this has always been one of my favorite. In fact, I feel like I should have this uh, stuck up on my wall somewhere. Death is nothing. But to live defeated and inglorious is to die daily. Talk to you next time, David. 1814? Yeah, 1814. Uh, appreciate everybody uh, uh, tuning in. And uh, next time we'll, we'll talk about uh, what happens to Napoleon in, in 1814 as he attempts to, to defend uh, France from, from invasion. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>